7: December 22nd, 2020, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Atlanta. Black Voters Matter, they are battling folks still when it comes to making sure all of our votes counted. We will talk with co-founder. Cliff Albright about Brunswick, Georgia. There was a hearing today. He'll give us the latest of those details. We'll also hear from John Ossoff who voted earlier today, as well as talk to uh, the president of Morris Brown College where Ossoff was on campus, supporting their efforts to regain their accreditation. We told you yesterday about the Kansas City Stars' apology for their racist coverage over their history. Today, we'll talk with folks from Kansas City to get their perspective on that. Also, Virginia Congressman Bobby Scott joins us to talk about the deal that Congress passed that will reinstate Pell Grants for incarcerated students and the forgiveness of more than $1 billion in federal loans to HBCUs. Uh, So we'll be discussing that. Plus, uh, Jamar Mackey, the Virginia Beach man who was handcuffed at a mall while having a meal with his family will join us to tell his story. All right, folks, uh, also on today's show, uh, my conversation with Dr. Kevin James, as I said, president of Morris Brown College. Plus, a new report that looks at racial disparities in the military shows that black service members in the Air Force are far more likely to be investigated, arrested, face actions, and be discharged for misconduct than other branches of the military. What's going on in the Air Force? Folks, it is time to bring the funk and roll a markdown filter. Let's go. All right, folks. Uh, here in Atlanta, we're broadcasting, of course, still covering the Georgia runoff here uh, in um, uh, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, we've been all over the state, and the folks, Black voters matter. They've also been all around the state as well. And what they have been doing is battling not just to re- not just to get Black folks registered to get them to vote, but also how Republicans are trying to stymie Black folks from voting. They were in Brunswick, Georgia, today. Uh, in an emergency hearing. Joining us right now is Cliff Albright, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Uh, Cliff, always glad to have you on Martin Unfiltered. Always
8: glad to be here, Roland. Thanks. All
7: right, Cliff, so tell our folks exactly what happened today in Brunswick, Georgia.
8: Yeah, so we were in Brunswick, Georgia on actually a pre-scheduled stop to do one of our regular events of, of doing a food and toy donation. When we found out last night that there was going to be an emergency hearing called because of these complaints that have been filed by this group called True La Vote, which is definitely a misnomer. Um, this is a group, um, conservative and in many ways just outright racist group that has gone around even in previous election cycles um, trying to get voters purged from lists. What they're doing right now in Georgia is that they're saying they're going to file complaints in all 159 counties. But today in Glynn County, what was called was an emergency hearing because of what they had filed in Glynn County. For those who don't know, Glen County is where Brunswick is, which is where Ahmaud Arbery was murdered and where the, the DA that tried to bury the case at first was recently voted out. And so that's why this county, like many others, is being targeted for this type of voter purge. So the, there was a court hearing today, which we attended. Um, it was a three-person, it's really a five-person board of elections, but only three members were present. And the person from this organization, actually, it was a local representative, a a former um, state representative who represents that area, was the person that was actually presenting the complaint in court. Then they allowed for some uh, public comments. I spoke on behalf of not only Black Voters Matter, but also a coalition of organizations that had sent a letter um, from that Legal Defense Fund, as well as other organizational partners that we have from across the state, Um, We sent a letter, and so I referenced the information in that letter, and I explained to them why it would be a violation of not just federal law, but state law, for them to move forward and to consider this complaint. You're not allowed to have any kind of purging or cleansing of voter lists within 90 days of an election, let alone within two weeks of a federal election. So that, on the face of it, made it um, an irrelevant and frivolous claim and so I let them know that, as well as some other issues. Some other local folks um, gave their public comments as well. And after very brief deliberations, the uh, board decided to not um, to not find probable cause, which essentially meant that they would not be moving forward with this complaint from this group.
7: Now, what folks also need to understand is that the uh, a judge also ruled the uh, secretary of state. Should sit down with various civil rights groups, including Black Voter Matters, over the purging of uh, folks uh, from the voting rolls. Uh, I, uh, we, Of course, the Latasha Brown, uh, and uh, when we were, of course, uh, in uh, Savannah on Friday, she was at the state capitol. Uh, she posted some photos of that on her social media page. I'm going to show that in a moment. But, Cliff, what is the status of that?
8: Yeah, we still haven't heard back from the state on that. And so, you know, what we're hoping is that the court will find that they're just in contempt of court. The court gave an order which basically said to work this out. We've done our due diligence trying to get them to respond by phone, by email, and as you referenced, even going down to the Capitol building to meet with the Secretary of State. They continue to respond, fail to respond. And so what we're hoping is that the court will ultimately just find them in contempt and decide to rule in our favor. And and, and with the, the remedy that we're seeking, is that those voters, and again, this is a purge that goes back to 2019. This isn't a purge from this year, but the implications, the the, the consequences of that purge are still being felt today because we don't know how many of those 200,000 that were legally purged um, have not yet been re- re-registered. So the remedy we're seeking is that they automatically get re-registered. We don't want them to have to um, file anything, to, to call anybody, to you know jump through any hoops. They were purged illegally, and so we want them to automatically be put back on the roads. They know who they purged. They know who they need to put back on, and that's what we're demanding. If the Secretary of State continue, continues to hide and, and duck and dodge and try to avoid us, then we expect for the court to find to, to find them in contempt.
7: And again, again, let me be real clear here. The courts ruled for y'all to sit down, and the Secretary of State— has not even responded?
8: He's ducking and dodging, Roland. They have not responded to repeated attempts to work this out as ordered by the court. Um, there's there's really nothing else to be done. We can't do anything more. We, we essentially almost had to sneak into the Capitol building just to serve them with the papers, to serve them with the notice that we were trying to um, to, to, to work this out and to have a discussion around it. And so there's really nothing else that we can do other than to, to wait for the court to decide that, that the Secretary of State is being non-responsive and that they just need to rule in our favor. I mean, if, the, if one side is not going to present their information, is not going to follow the court order, you know, we don't need to be dragging this out. And we're really concerned that that's, that's what's going on here, that the Secretary of State feels that if they could just drag this out, that at some point the courts will just have to decide, well, look, it's only two weeks left. There's nothing we can do. Um, and so we know that that's the strategy. That's why we were aggressive in trying to meet with them. They're failing to respond. We think that the court needs to act now.
7: In fact, uh, Cliff, I'm showing, these are the photos that Latasha posted from three days ago, where to your point about sneaking in, they were avoiding y'all, and uh, y'all had to track them down to serve them with these papers. They did not actually want to meet with Black Voters Matter.
8: No, no. When they when they found that we were in there and, and had the papers to give them, it was like catching somebody with their hands in a cookie jar. You know, they, they were uh, pretty much like, oh, how you get in here? Well, you know, that's what we do. We find a way, you know, whatever it is that we have to do to protect our folks' right to vote, um, we're going to make that happen. And whether that's um, um, going to the Capitol to, to serve them with papers or whether that's showing up today, in Glenn County, to demand that these voters not be purged um, and that that they follow the law, that you can't do this kind of list maintenance within 90 days. We're going to do whatever it takes to let them know that we're not standing by it. And what's important is that, you know, especially in these rural counties, because the same thing they're trying to do in Glenn County, they're trying to do in counties all over the state, they're they're trying to do it. They already tried it in Cobb and it was shot down. They tried it in Muskogee, and that Board of Elections actually um, found that there was some probable cause to at least look into it doesn't mean that they're purging folks, but still even looking into it has a chilling effect, right? It has the effect of, of intimidating voters with the thought that they might be asked, why did you change your address? Where are you going? What are you doing? Who are you voting for, right? And so they try to do these things in these rural counties. And part of why we do what we do, why we roll through in these communities with the Blackest is Busted America, is because we want our folks to know that they are not alone. And there are several people from Brunswick in that courthouse today who said, you know what? I thought I was going to be here by myself. I was so glad to see y'all. That's the kind of impact that we want to have in communities. We don't want anybody in our communities who's trying to fight for truth. We who believe in freedom shall not rest. We don't want folks to feel like um, that they're alone in these battles. So it was really important to us that we were there today, that we were in the Capitol the other day serving those papers. And we will continue to be in every county, wherever there are Black voters facing these issues, that's where we're going to show up, along with some incredible state partners. You know, big thanks to LDF for, for drafting a letter that was sent to the Glenn County Board of Elections today.
7: And again, Cliff, that that is the thing that made. So here we are in the middle of an election. Uh, we're sitting here trying to get folks out, and y'all are on the front lines just to make sure that Republicans in this state are not trying to intimidate Black voters. Trying to suppress black voters because they clearly understand the empower they understand the power of the black vote, and this is how they want to win. They do not want to win on the issues. They frankly want to win by cheating. Yeah, and, it's and hilarious I said that to them, that they keep yelling, uh, you know, stop the steal. They keep yelling, stop the steal. But that's what they're trying to do.
8: Right, right. The, the, the levels of hypocrisy are mind blowing. Right, and I mentioned that to them. In my public comments to the Board of Elections today, because what they were trying to argue is that they don't know who these voters are, right? They're just doing this, they're just trying to clean the roads. We don't know who's gonna be impacted. We don't know what the race of the voters are. And what I told the Board of Elections is look, we gotta be honest here, right? We just got to, we just gotta we just gotta deal with the reality. We know why they're doing this. They know who it is that would be purged by this. At the same in the same breath that they were arguing that they know that these weren't military people because they didn't want to act like they were trying to purge military. So they said, no, we, we researched it, and these aren't military. And, oh, we researched it, and these aren't students. So, like I said to the, in the, to the board of elections, I said, you know what? They're telling us they know everything there is to know about these voters. They know whether they're military, whether they're students. They know their shoe size. They know what their favorite food is to eat. But somehow they want us to believe that they don't know their rates. That doesn't make sense, right? That just flies in the face of, of everything that we know. We know why it is that they're, that they're doing this. We know that they're mad because Georgia flipped in November. We know that they're scared, as you said, that they're running scared because of the historic voter turnout that we've seen in the first week of early voting, plus the vote by mail. They, We know that they're scared because of the momentum. We know that they're mad because of what happened in Brunswick and Glenn County where they got rid of the D.A. This is why. They're using these tactics, and especially in a place like Brunswick and Glenn County, we need not be naive about what's going on. In fact, one of the acts that I cited and that the LDF cited in the letter, this isn't just a violation of the recent of the Voting Rights Act or the Help America Vote Act. The intimidation that this represents goes to the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, and so I mentioned that in court in, in the hearing today. And I looked dead at the representative who was bringing this hearing when I referenced the KKK Act because that's all that's going on. It is the same kind of intimidation. They want our voters to have to answer questions about why they're voting a certain way or where they lived or where they moved to and all this stuff, that's intimidation. And we're not having it. That's what we're trying to do today. That's what we're trying to do with the the lawsuit that we have against the Secretary of State.
7: All right then, Cliff Albright. uh, We certainly appreciate it. Uh, Look, keep us abreast. Uh, Whatever happens, uh, y'all know y'all can come on here at any time uh, to break this thing down, and we're going to keep you know, pressing uh, and making it perfectly clear that uh, we are watching and paying attention.
8: Thank you so much, Roland. Be on the lookout. Valdosta is next up. We're fighting for that as well, too. And that's, in this case, thousands of voters at the potential town of Virgin
7: Valdosta, Georgia. All right, then. All right, Cliff Albright, co founder of Black Voters Matter, thank you so very much. Thank you,
8: Rowan.
7: All right, folks. Last week, uh, the first day of early voting, uh, Raphael Warnock uh, went to the polls and he voted with uh, Ambassador Andrew Young. Well, today, John Ossoff actually decided to go vote. We were there, uh, and he actually had a little shout-out for our uh, folks uh, who, uh, who watched this show. Uh, so uh, check this out. Hello
0: to the whole row.
7: As I said, uh, John Ossoff uh, uh, met with a group of folks uh, not at the Metropolitan Library uh, across the street at a park. Uh, we were actually there uh, covering that. He spoke to them. Uh, and also, uh, he was joined by folks with the, the, the Millennial Civil Rights Project. They were there uh, standing with him uh, as he uh, went and voted early today. Uh, and there, there should be, some, y'all should be seeing some video there uh, of uh, John Ossoff in the voting booth uh, casting his early vote. As I, last week, of course, Warnock voted more than. Uh, 1.3 million folks have voted uh, early already, in-person voting, but in addition to in-person voting, uh, also uh, folks who voted early uh, by absentee ballot. They have drop boxes uh, in various locations uh, across uh, the country in order for people to be able to drop off their ballots if they don't want to stand in line. Now, of course, Republicans do not like uh, those drop boxes at all. They don't like those drop boxes at all. And so uh, what they prefer uh, is for folks to, to stand in line. Uh, it was not a long line. In fact, uh, Ossoff, uh, it, he voted uh, rather quickly compared to last week uh, when uh, Raphael Warnock uh, voted. There uh, was a lot more folks in line that first day. Uh, but again, it was, uh, it, was, um, it was good to see uh, the folks out there uh, at Metropolitan Library here in Atlanta, uh, where he went uh, and voted. Uh, to uh, cast his ballot. And, of course, there are three races. There are three races folks are voting on. His race against Senator David Perdue, uh, Warnock against Kelly Loeffler, and as well as an African-American uh, who is running for the Public uh, Utility Commission. That's, that's an important position. He would be the first Democrat elected in 20 years to that particular, uh, particular position. And so we're going to actually uh, chat with him uh, a little bit later this week. And so bring you Daniel Blackburn talking about uh, his important race. So these three runoff races are on the ballot. All efforts are out there uh, to get uh, folks focused on that. Now, after uh, Ossoff uh, voted early, he then went to Morris Brown College. Remember, we had the president on here talking about them pursuing uh, a reaccreditation. And there, Ossoff talked about the importance of Morris Brown and what he would do for HBCUs if he is elected. United States Senator. Here is some of that uh, discussion.
0: I want to point out it's been eight months since the U.S. Senate passed any direct stimulus payments for the American people and they've decided after eight months of obstruction, they're going to send $600. Well, for folks who are unable to make the rent, can't make the car payment, can't afford the prescriptions behind on the bills, $600 is a joke. And the truth of the matter is that they don't care about regular people. If the most powerful investment banks in the country, stock valuations, started plummeting overnight, they would jet back to Washington in four hours and pass legislation. But when it's ordinary people, when it's corner mechanics, small businesses, they held it up for eight months and they cut it in half to $600. I would have voted for the bill, but it's a joke, $600? Mm -hmm. So we need to reorient. The mindset of our elected officials toward helping regular people and that has to happen at the ballot box and the polls are open right now
8: right.
0: You and let me be clear that President James and I were discussing this back in the spring we were talking about what Georgia's United States Senate offices can do to help accelerate Mm -hmm. the process of reaccreditation under your leadership Mr. President that applications be accepted they'll be here in January and it may be as soon as the springtime that Morris Brown will be eligible for those kinds of federal grants so expanding the Pell Grant program should be non-controversial when I debated my opponent I'm not going to get too partisan here at an educational event, but I'll just say this. When I debated my opponent in Savannah back when he would debate me, and I was arguing for expansion of the Pell Grant program, he denounced that as socialism. Expansion of the Pell Grant program, college affordability. Bishop, have you noticed that there's always money for tax giveaways for wealthy donors? There's always money for bank bailouts. There's always money for war. But then when you start talking about making college affordable for young black people in this country, suddenly the country has no resources. It's about priorities. And Morris Brown and HBCUs must be among the highest priorities for political leaders. It's been too long since political leaders talked about ending poverty in America. We've become, I think, too cynical, unwilling to dream about what's possible. We should not accept that poverty and homelessness are inevitable or necessary in our society. As long as there are poverty and homelessness, we are failing as a people. So we need to once again talk about ending poverty in America, talk about ending homelessness in America. The problem of gentrification in the urban core of this city. And again, I want to observe the discrepancy between the level of public resources invested in entertainment and the level of public resources invested in education. As people are forced out and as black communities are forced out of the center of this city by the rising property taxes, Our government's failure to invest in transit, in transportation, and in affordable housing means that people are living far from where they work and can barely put a roof over their heads. And that's why we need an infrastructure and jobs bill as part of a relief effort after COVID-19 that will include investments in transit and transportation
3: and in affordable housing. I believe that was our last question for our time today. Sir, we want to thank you again for being here today. Thank you. You know, just for the media to know, an invitation went out to everyone, and you were the only one that responded. And so we want to thank you for your investment into HBCUs, specifically here at Morris Brown College. Morris Brown is back. We're gonna bring this institution back stronger than ever the only black college in Georgia founded by African-Americans for us, by us, and an institution that is a haven for hungry souls. We don't turn folks away. Anyone who deserves an education, anyone who wants an education, the doors are open here at Morris Brown. And we appreciate your support. As soon as I leave here, I'm headed over to vote. So we encourage the entire community to please vote. And thank you so much again for being here today.
7: All right. That was John ossoff on the campus of uh, Morris Brown College. There, uh, and as I said, uh, the university uh, there focused on trying to regain uh, their Mr. President, so when campus uh, uh, of opportunity. to Hi, Mr. Talk Mr. Pre- To the Morris Brown president. Uh, after uh, that particular interview, uh, here is uh, our conversation. All right, Mr. President, so we're in the campus of Morris Brown, uh, and this campus used to be larger. Yes. So, you know, what has changed now? Are you down to, is it what, a couple of buildings? Yes, so here at Morris
3: Brown, we historically had 42 acres of land. During bankruptcy, we lost about 36 acres. Wow. So right now, we have three buildings here at Morris Brown. Uh, our administration building, which right. is now known as the Dr. Gloria L. Anderson Multipurpose Complex, we have Griffin High Tower Science Building, and then Fountain Hall, which is our historic symbol of the institution. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. W. E. B. Du Bois'
7: office is on the second floor. I was last here when the uh, the BT show the quad, a yes. shot on this campus. Yes. Uh, now that you uh, have the accreditation, what's the next What's the next step? um yes. because obviously you saw, you you had to sell you had to sow land yes so so what's next uh with these three buildings panel is it refurbishing so so what's yes. the next steps for morris brown
3: yes so we just refurbished this building the multi-purpose complex we're not fully accredited yet our okay. application was approved right and they will be here in two weeks to come and look at the facilities for the on site right. um once we get the through the visit the our goal is to be a candidate for accreditation in april okay and so in a few months uh, regarding these buildings, right now we're prepping to turn this building right here into a hotel. Okay. So we're going to tie it into our hospitality and management training program. So this right here, and then we're currently working on restoring Fountain Hall. All right. Now, that's a historic landmark. It can never go anywhere. It will be here
7: forever. Uh, so, but but, but the whole point, part of the, the whole point of the accreditation is yes. uh, you, you have to, it, facilities are a huge part Absolutely. of accreditation. Absolutely. And so, you turn that to the hotel. Now, is that where, uh, if, if you get the accreditation, where students will stay?
3: Well, we're looking at some extended state housing, but we're looking at housing options right now for our students. Online learning is going to be critically important. For our restoration of the institution, and so that's going to be a part of it. And we're also looking at trying to get some of the land surrounding the institution back.
7: Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so, so in terms of if you talk about okay April, um, when when do you think you will be back uh, in uh, full operation? Yes. Uh, as a fully uh, accredited. Restore University? Well,
3: after a candidacy, which is the most important for us, we're eligible to apply for federal financial aid. That's the most important for us right now. After candidacy, it's somewhere between three to five years, or it could be somewhere between two to five years, just depending on how fast you get through proving everything that you need to prove.
7: But Morris Brown, we intend on doing it very quickly. So you have, for folks who might say, look, why are you going through all of this? You've got Clark Atlanta, you've got Morehouse, you've got Spelman, Uh, folks can go there, why invest money in this when you can actually consolidate yes. uh, to be able to serve the needs uh, of uh, students?
3: Well, we're Morris Brown. We've been open since 1881, and we don't want to merge with any other institution. We want to fully restore this institution. You know, Morris Brown's very special. We're the only black college in the state that was founded by black people for black people. You know, nothing against any other institution, but we're the original for us, by us. And we wanna continue uh, to move this institution forward. The blood, sweat, and tears of our ancestors, we're not gonna allow it to die. So we're gonna continue to push forward as Morris Brown College.
7: Are you still, uh, in terms of uh, what role does the church still play uh, in Morris Brown? Uh, And for folks out there who are saying, okay, Why haven't they done more to help the university uh, to restore it?
3: Well, actually, we are still affiliated with the AME Church. We're founded in the basement of Big Bethel AME Church. Uh, We are AME Church-affiliated institution. Now, regarding them helping us, they've absolutely helped us over the years. As a matter of fact, the only reason we're open today is because of the support of the AME Church. Most recently, they, they showed up and showed out by forgiving $4.2 million that we owed them mm. so we can get accredited. And so they're, and they're still supporting us financially. They just, uh, at homecoming, uh, presented a check for $120,000 on behalf of the 6th District of the AME Church. So the AME Church definitely has been supportive and uh, we're gonna continue our
7: affiliation with them. All right then, well, we certainly appreciate it, so it keep us up to date. Yes, sir. Uh, what's happened with Morris Brown? Yes, sir, thank you All so right, much, thanks sir. a bunch, I appreciate thank it. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you Let's go to our panel, Candace Kelly, legal analyst, Rena Shaw, the Lincoln Project Women's Coalition, also Joseph Williams Sr., editor U.S. News & World Report. Candace, let's first start with our top story, the folks that Black Voters Matter uh, are are battling. What we are seeing in this uh, state, uh, even though we're in the middle of a runoff election, Republicans are desperate to win. They do not like the fact that Joe Biden won by less than 12,000 votes against Donald Trump. In fact, Republicans wanted to change the state law to impact the January 5th runoff. That is called voter suppression.
9: Indeed, it is called voter suppression. And, you know, Cliff said a number of important things, but one of the most important things he said was that everything that they're trying to do in terms of going into the court system, and actually, you know, legally trying to suppress voters, is that they haven't met the lowest threshold at all. And that is probable cause. They haven't met that. All of these lawsuits are frivolous. And just as we've seen all of the other lawsuits that have been pushed back and put off and all the way up to the Supreme Court, we're going to see that here. We've seen that here. They have said it is a frivolous lawsuit. Another thing that we're looking at and it seems to be a pattern of let's just do nothing by the Republicans. Let's not respond. Let's act like they're not there. This is why we saw Ossoff kind of, uh, you know, talk to an empty uh, an empty stage because we we had Purdue saying, "I'm not even going to acknowledge him. I'm just going to pretend that he's not there." Just like President Trump, I'm going to pretend like. I haven't lost. I'm just not going to say anything in terms of trying to um, acquiesce and say, hey, I-, I happen to have lost. So we see a lot of the strategies at play here, but mostly we see that we have precedent and the fact that even though they're, they're trying to legally, supp- Ill- uh, illegally suppress voters, they're not going to get away with it because precedent has already spoken and, and people are already on the ground fighting very, very hard, as we saw Latasha and Cliff to find people, to go and serve them, to say, hey, this is not going to work
7: out. The uh, Joseph, again, this is why the legal groups matter. This is why we have to stay hyper hypervigilant, uh, because, again, what Republicans want to do in this state, they want to shave off 1,000, 5, 10, 20, 30, 50,000 votes because they know this is going to be a very, very close runoff.
4: Well, that's exactly right, and they do it in places where they think no one is looking, like Brunswick, Georgia, uh, like uh, some of the other counties that Cliff mentioned. Uh, but look, this is a battle that we've been fighting, uh, as as he also mentioned, since the 1800s. It has never stopped. It's a relentless battle. The only difference now is that there are courts that can handle this kind of thing, and it doesn't have to be settled with the gun at the ballot box, as they probably would have done uh, if they were able to get away with it. But what's uh, fr- incredibly frustrating to me is the fact that uh, this is an area of the country that we used to have uh, protocols to, to, to keep them from doing things like purging voter rolls uh, within 30 days of an election and passing new laws. That was the uh, a, a pre-clearance uh, section of the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act rather, that the Supreme Court gutted uh, a couple of years ago. This would not be happening uh, if that were still in place. But we do know that Republicans are really ready, willing and able to do whatever it takes to win. They believe in power. They don't believe in democracy, necessarily, and they are doing what they need to do right now. Uh, Georgia is very crucial, uh, as as we've discussed many times in the show. Win it, you win control of the Senate, lose it, and the Democrats get to do uh, uh, execute their agenda to a certain degree. So for Republicans, it's a winner-take-all strategy. No stone left unturned, no holds barred. So I expect to see even more of that continued with the onslaught of propaganda that we've been seeing, From uh, national Democrats, or national Republicans, uh, to uh, disparage uh, Raphael uh, Warnock and uh, John Ossoff. It's already starting. It's going to get more intense as the election day nears. So there are going to be many, many battles to be fought on this front before the final vote is cast.
7: Uh, This arena uh, is powerful, of course, for Republicans, especially in this state. They can't handle losing. So therefore, they want to cheat. Now, it's hilarious to hear them talking about steal the vote when that's literally what they are trying to do by stealing elections, by disenfranchising black people in this state and other states across the country.
10: Well, Roland, I mean, I think when you're desperate, you're this desperate, you're going to call in the cavalry from other places. And uh, I'm reminded by the, by that very thing uh, tonight when I read a, a story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it is appalling what the Georgia Republican Party is doing in partnering with a Texas-based group called True the Vote. They're an election watchdog group, and they're targeting voters whose names are showing up on U.S.P.S. lists, basically, our U.S. Postal Service has lists showing whose addresses have changed. Well, that's where True the Vote, this group, is going to say, basically, you know, here are the people we need to purge. They act like they're doing something that's necessary for democracy, but what they're really doing in challenging the eligibility of over 364,000 Georgian voters who have either moved is really A bold-faced, a really sad, bold-faced attempt to disqualify those ballots. What they're trying to do is make it so that those people have to fill out provisional ballots if they show up at the polls, and they've already been successful. In Muskogee County, that very tactic that True the Vote has has done, it's gaining traction. And in Muskogee County, 4,000 voters, if they show up at the polls, are going to have to fill out provisional ballots. This is so important to talk about. We need to talk to our neighbors in Georgia. If you're listening tonight, you live in Georgia, talk to your neighbors about this. This group is on the ground, and guess what? They're getting Republican political operatives in different counties to do this thing, how? They are basically questioning the voters' residency and leaving decisions over whose ballot should count. They're leaving it to election boards. And what these operatives are doing by going to these election boards and challenging it, they're essentially saying, hey, look, we've got something here. So, look, the burden of proof is on the challenger for sure, but voters might be asked to provide information that shows their vote is actually valid. That is where this whole thing becomes murky, and this is why we need to stay vigilant. You are so right about that, because when they're desperate, the Republicans are desperate, they call in the cavalry, and what they're doing right now is just the most bold-faced attempt and, to disenfranchise voters, and it's one of the oldest tricks in the book. It really is. And this is how they hope to win.
7: Um, Absolutely. And so uh, what we have been doing, we're going to continue to focus folks uh, on these issues, continue to shine a light uh, on them because uh, they are crucially important, again, as we begin to break these things down. Got to go to a break. We come back. We're going to talk about Kansas City. Uh, The local newspaper there apologized for years of racist coverage. We'll talk to black folks who are from KC, about that. Also, we'll chat with Congressman Bobby Scott about uh, changes in law, which will now allow those who have served in prison to qualify for Pell Grants, but also the forgiveness of a billion dollars in federal loans to HBCUs. And that Virginia black man uh, who was handcuffed by cops while he was eating with his family at the mall, the cops have now issued an apology. We will talk to him right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Atlanta. Uh, We are on the ground covering the Georgia Senate runoff races. We'll be back in a moment.
11: If your vote didn't matter, you wouldn't have so many people trying so hard to stop you from voting. There is some value there. But even when you talk about that people are not paying attention to your issues, I can't pay attention to your issues if I don't even know you there. And the only reason people are gonna know you're is when you show up to the polls and vote. That's when that power manifests itself. But as long as you stay at home, as long as you are making excuses, then guess what? You will always experience these issues that we're experiencing today. And another thing, don't get caught up in the candidates, right, there's, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect candidate, but you should be going to vote for the most important person and that is you and the one you love. You talk about you're you're fight for the one you love. You're willing to die for the one you love. You need to ask yourself, are you willing to vote for the one you love? Because if you don't, there's gonna be somebody's neck on yours pretty soon.
0: Daring to demand the right to vote for black Americans in Selma, Alabama 55 years ago, John Lewis was nearly killed as he and hundreds marched across this bridge That movement's courage secured the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But the promise of equal justice in America remains unfulfilled. So together, we'll fight for a new Civil Rights Act and a new Voting Rights Act to ensure equal justice for all, no matter the color of our skin, to end racial profiling and police brutality, and to stop anyone from suppressing the sacred right to vote. Congressman Lewis gave me my first job. He instilled in me the conviction to fight for justice. He said to never give in. Never give up. Keep the faith and keep our eyes on the prize. I'm John Ossoff. I approve this message.
12: Too many people struggled, suffered, and died to make it possible for every American to exercise their right to vote. There's a lot of stuff to do this time of year get the tree done, hang the lights, not yet, wrap presents, check. But this year, there's one extra thing to do, vote. That's right, early voting starts December 14th, so make voting part of your holiday plans. It'll probably take you less time than it'll take me to do this. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message.
13: We learned early in Sunday school that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Raphael Warnock's opponent seems to have forgotten these basic Sunday school lessons.
8: Her gods agreed her lies about Pastor Warnock.
14: And her shady Wall Street practices are evidence of this. And on January the 5th, let's bear witness that
15: greed,
7: lies, and shady dealings don't represent Georgia. Let's send Raphael Warnock to the U.S. Senate
14: to fight for the least of these and not Wall Street billionaires.
8: We're about to get ready to launch our We Got Power tour.
15: Cliff and I are going on the blackest bus in America. We're hitting the streets again.
8: We're going to be going through at least 12 states, maybe more. I'm just really excited.
6: It's a little bit different this time because COVID-19, we've got to wear a mask, we've got to be socially distant, but we are very committed that we've got to get in the streets and inspire and encourage our people in ways that are socially distant.
8: Ready to hit the road, ready to see our folks, ready to be socially distant, ready to mask up.
15: On our way to Pennsylvania, we'll be there for two
6: days, and then we're headed to Ohio to Cleveland
8: going to be just spreading a lot of love and building a lot of power.
6: The very last day, we're going to be out here on the ground in these streets because our people need us. Can't stop. Won't stop.
14: Register to vote.
8: You can even request your online vote by mail ballot by clicking the link or by scanning our QR code with your camera. Vote early. Vote today.
16: Because we got power.
7: The Kansas City Star, the the city's uh, daily newspaper, uh, apologized for years and years, decades of racist coverage against African Americans. How do black folks feel about that? Eric Weston is the managing editor of the Kansas City Call, the black newspaper there, and Sheila Brooks, the CEO of DC-based SRB Communications and a native of Kansas City. Glad to have both of you. Uh, Eric, uh, first and foremost, uh, of course, the call, Uh, has been known for its coverage of the black community there, historic black newspaper there. What do you make of this massive spread by the Kansas City Star and them uh, looking inward, apologizing for decades of racist coverage targeting African Americans? Okay, uh, let me know about Eric. Uh, Sheila, you there?
17: I'm right here. Can you hear me?
7: All right, so we'll, guys, let me know. Let me know we have the audio straight with Eric Wesson. Uh, Sheila, that, uh, you take that question there. Uh, your thoughts on this big spread in the paper and that apology.
17: Well, you know, Roland, African-Americans have been disenfranchised because of those racist stories over the years. It's good to see leadership stand up, admit it, but we need to go the next step. We need to start hiring people who look like us, people who are in uh, positions of power as editors, as well as reporters, so that they can go out and cover these stories. And I guess my question to the Kansas City Star right now is, what's next? What do you do next? So all these years, this you finally realized uh, that this has been wrongdoing. How do you change that in your newsroom? What happens next?
7: Eric Wesson, managing editor of the call. Your thoughts?
5: Well, I think that it's kind of a little bit too much, too late. Where's the reparations in all of this? You know, it's one thing to say, hey, we sorry, uh, we won't do it again. But it kind of looks like it's, you know, we apologize, coming by our paper again, black people, because we're okay now. And it's one of the things, as I was telling the publisher and president of The Star, it's like the horse is already out of the barn. Now you close the gate and you think everything is okay, but the horse is still out of the barn. So how do you make amends for uh, an advantage that you've had in disenfranchising a race of people for 143 years? Where, Where do you make amends at?
7: And that point you made there, Sheila, I think is a critical one while you're saying, what's next? Because here's the paper examining its coverage. Now the question that, look, you're a long-time member of NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, so am I. And our deal all is, okay, now how do you look at inside? How do you now say this is the path we're going to chart forward when it comes to covering African Americans, when it comes to staffing, when it comes to things along those lines?
17: No, you're absolutely right. And, it, and what's happening is we see all of this in the backdrop of all of the racial unrest rest in this country. But we've missed so many of our stories in the African-American community in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, those achievements that so many of those leaders had and aspirations and milestones. And now we're saying, okay, we're sorry, but how do you move forward? What are you going to do different in that newsroom? How do you go about getting the coverage right this time? And the way to start that is certainly to have African-Americans who are editors, who are reporters, who are out covering stories, and who are part of the news gathering process. That's what makes changes in the newsroom. And it can't just be, oh, we're going to hire one or two people to make this happen. There has to be a a complete overhaul of that newsroom.
5: I agree with
7: that. Uh, Eric, obviously, uh, you're there with... with, with. Eric, go ahead. Eric, go ahead.
5: And I agree with that. And this morning in our conversation, it was, well, you know, we hired a black editor now. So he's gonna go out and we have this advisory board. And I'm thinking, why do you have to have an advisory board to tell you how to connect to the black community when you're here in the black community? I mean, I I don't understand what that is. And I think a lot of reparations need to be made uh, with that. But what was your question? No, I mean, that in in
7: terms of uh, picking up on that, because at the end of the day, that's really how, if you want to talk about this is what we did in the past, really the question is how you're charting a, a new future and the reality is let's just cut to the taste. White folks have no clue on how to, uh, to appropriately cover black folks and what they do is you also uh, can't just say yeah we hired one. It's a hell of a lot of talented black journalists out there and you got to have editors with guts to say we're not just going to hire one we're going to actually hire more than that and, be, and also and make non-black staffers Understand you've got to integrate African Americans into every single thing that you do, whether it's sports, entertainment, business, culture, lifestyle, food, you name it. That has to be the mission.
17: And, and it <laughs> has to be. That's being intentional, and that's what has to happen. You have to be intentional about your news coverage, and that has not happened at the Kansas City Star, or for that matter, so many other media organizations in this country. And now, in the backdrop of the racial unrest in this country, everybody (laughs) steps, whether it's newspapers or other media outlets, major corporations, um, major advertising agencies, global as well as national. And Everybody's saying, "Oh, we're going to hire these DEI uh, folks." That's not going to do it, folks. That that's not going to change content and change coverage. The only way that's going to happen is that you hire people who look like you and me, Roland, who look like all of us here on this newscast, and then it trickles down. You have to hire them so they can hire other reporters and photographers and all of those other folks that we're talking about. But then since we're talking about coverage, What's going to change as you go out in our communities, particularly in the community of Kansas City, Missouri? What's going to change in order to bring back the kind of positive coverage now, not the negative coverage, not what has happened over all these years in the past?
5: And, you know, in addition to that, the hiring. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to the hiring. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, Can you hear me? Uh-huh. Can you hear me? Yep, okay, go ahead. In addition to the hiring practices, it also has to be an effort made to get that next generation of reporters. And one of the things that I suggested to them was let's do some scholarships. When I was a member of the KCABJ, I can remember the store buying us some coffee and donuts maybe once or twice for a meeting. But where's the outreach? Where's it going into Lincoln College Prep School, Central High School, motivating and inspiring young, the next generation of, next, of journalists to come in to write about it? We, we had a flood here several years ago, well, about a decade ago. It mentioned the damage that it did to the black community in passing. Every other story on there was about the damage that it did to the plaza. When we had the unrest here in Kansas City uh, several months ago, When they stepped foot on the plaza, it changed the whole dynamic of things, but that's what they reported. And if it wasn't for the fact of George Floyd, I doubt very seriously today if the star would have written an apology and done this series. To me, the series is okay, fine and good, but it just seems superficial, Roland. It's like... Other newspapers have done that throughout the country, and I looked some of them up starting in June. They started doing it at the unrest of George Floyd. So, again, my question is, if this is sincere, why did it take George Floyd for them to start talking about the practices that they've had for centuries? That's my problem. Where do we go from here? What do we do? This all seems good and it come by y'all moment and they going to go to bed and feel good saying, hey, you know, we we trying to do something better. But where's the fruits of your labor at?
17: And, you know, Roland, it is no all longer right. a nice to have.
7: She- Sheila, Sheila so- Brooks, final comment.
17: Yes, it's no longer a nice to have one african-american uh that's an editor or a reporter it's a moral obligation no longer do we want to hear about talking the talk we want to see them walk the walk and you can do that partner with the national association of black journalists if you're looking for talent- talented african americans we know how to find them if you don't
5: <laughs> absolutely
7: absolutely ain't that hard sheila brooks eric weston we certainly appreciate it thank you so very much
5: all right.
7: Okay, thank that- you, brother. Joseph William, I want to start with you. Uh, what, what, what the Kansas City car, star, star has done, it's important. This is what other newspapers should do as well, go into the history. The New York Times did that when it came to the old bits they did on African-Americans. This is all a part of the reckoning, dealing with the history of race in this country and the role that media has played in fostering racism, uh, white supremacy, bigotry in America.
4: Well, yeah, exactly. And part of the problem that I have with the series, I mean, yeah, absolutely, it is it is fine to, to get reckoning, put your cards on the table, talk about what you have done. However, it is superficial. There is no... Uh, uh, a plan going forward. And you and I both know, um, proud NABJMM right here. Uh, I used to work for the Richmond Times Dispatch. The Richmond Times Dispatch. Now, if they don't have some reckoning to do, I don't know what paper does. And they have not yet even come close to doing anything like that. So I think that they not only do have to reckon with the past, which a lot of people are not going to be happy about, they don't want to hear these sort of things, they feel like the past needs to stay in the past, but you can't move forward unless you know what the history is. And I think that it's a good starting point. They need to partner up with NABJ. They need to run uh, scholarship programs. They need to recruit from HBCUs. My own paper, uh, the the organization that I work for right now, US News and World Report, we have had a problem with this. And that is one of the things that I have brought to their feet is we need to recruit internships. We need to recruit interns from Howard University right down the street. Not uh, an intern has ever come from Howard uh, J School. So there are things that it can do. It's low-hanging fruit. It's really, really easy. One other point that I do want to make is that uh, the, 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 the failure of the mainstream media back in those days and, and continuing into these days led to the rise of the black press. And and you yourself, as a former executive editor of the Chicago Defender, one of the proudest newspapers in the history of the black press, it gave rise to those sorts of things that, that needs to be rebuilt. We need to have a black press on the scene because we know that white the, the, the influence of, of, of white media is fairly limited, and they're only going to do the least that they can do.
7: Uh, that is certainly the case uh, there. Uh, so you absolutely nailed it. Folks, uh, congressional leaders have struck a deal uh, to reinstate Pell Grants for incarcerated uh, folks. This, th- why is this important? This is important because um, in the 1994 crime bill, this whole tough on crime deal, that's where that money was pulled. For 26 years, Pell Grants have been withheld from nearly 1.5 million people in state and federal prisons. Now, the proposed change would grant incarcerated students eligibility to use federal dollars to pay for college while in prison. In addition to this, Congress has also moved forward to uh, forgive more than a billion dollars in loans to HBCUs. Joining us right now is Virginia Congressman Bobby Scott, uh, who is a strong advocate for education. Congressman Scott, glad to have you back on Roland Martin Unfiltered.
18: Good to see you, Roland. Can you hear me? For folks who
7: don't quite understand how, I can hear you just fine, sir. For folks who don't quite understand uh, how big this is, uh, this provision to deny Pell Grants to folks who were in prison or even those who even got out, formerly incarcerated, in addition to the banning of people from public housing, this had a tremendous impact in the 80s, 90s, 2000, the present day, on people who went through our uh, criminal justice system who were trying to get back on their feet, but frankly were being shut out of most avenues in order to do so?
18: Well, anybody who's coming out of prison knows that you're gonna have challenges trying to get a job. If you've got uh, college degrees, that makes things easier. If you have job skills, that makes things easier. Unfortunately, in the 1994 crime bill, the rhetoric got out of hand, and they said, "Well, if you're in prison, you're not going to be eligible for a Pell Grant." Uh, that was that's counterproductive because all the studies show that if you get a good education in prison, you're so much less likely to come back. Uh, and you say the the government saves more money in reduced future incarceration than you spend on the Pell Grants. Uh, so it makes no sense to deny the uh, uh, prisoners Pell Grants because we deny the government uh, cost savings. Uh, in addition to that, it, it, it helps the prisons. Uh, people are busy studying. They're, they're, they're too busy to be uh, messing around and causing uh, causing havoc. But this is a, it's a big deal because as you come out of prison, you will be able to uh, get um, uh, uh, much more likely to get a job. And it, it's always amazed to me, if you hold somebody in prison three, four, five years, six years, how do they come out as uneducated as they went in? That just makes no sense. And so the Pell Grants, I think, was was a major step forward. As, as you indicated, it's been about 26 years uh, in denial. We've missed all the opportunity to educate the prisoners. We've seen people come back to prison, prison and we spent all that money because we didn't make the investments. Uh, but now in the future, we will be able to um, uh, educate the prisoners so that they can take care of themselves and won't. Uh, 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 won't get in trouble uh, in much less likely to get in trouble in the future. Um, a lot of groups support it. It's just tough politically. Uh, I saw one report that even the Chamber of Commerce supports it because they're looking for workers. And if the workers come out of prison uh, better educated, they'll make, they'll make better workers. Well, but part of, part of the problem here, Congress is, Scott,
7: uh, is this whole nonsense of lock them up, throw them with a key. They don't need uh, services. They don't need any of these things. What the hell is rehabilitation? What the hell is the point of spending 35 dollars $50,000 a year to imprison somebody only to create an environment where they have to frankly come out. If, if, if I can't live in public housing and I can't get an education and because of, uh, uh, because of the box, I can't sit here uh and, and get a job what the hell else do i have to do but to go
18: back to a life of crime in order to live and survive you're, you're exactly right and the old way of doing things was just to stick with the rhetoric the poll tested slogans and sound bites and it doesn't have to make any sense it just has to appeal to a motion and get you some votes uh, i'm delighted to report that um uh, joe biden has promised in his upcoming administration to take a much more enlightened approach. prevention, early intervention, rehabilitation, making the investments that reduce crime and save money. If you look at the Democratic platform, um, you'll see major investments in making rehabilitation to make sure that people who go to prison come out much better educated than they went in, much less likely to commit a crime uh, than they were when they were arrested. So I'm looking forward to uh, to, uh, Change in direction. In 1994, it was all slogans and sound bites. That was just the politics of the day. There's nothing you can do about it. That's just how people were. You argue, you give them statistics, they weren't interested. Uh, now I think there's an appetite for doing things that make sense, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what's about 30 days when uh, Joe Biden gets sworn in. We'll be able to take a uh, different uh, different approach.
7: Uh, Congressman, I do want to ask you about this here, to speak about this forgiveness of a billion dollars in loans to HBCUs. That is certainly good news for the nation's HBCUs.
18: Well, another thing that, as you've indicated in the bill's loan forgiveness of HBCUs under the capital loan uh, program, Uh, many have uh, desperately needed the funds and borrowed the money uh, and made capital improvements. The pandemic has come. They're all under severe financial stress. And now these loans are are, are causing uh, causing problems. The accreditation of colleges is, is to a certain extent, based on your financial security. Um, And if you have financial stress, uh, you may lose your accreditation. And so um, uh, this loan forgiveness will go a long way in helping the colleges not only get a much better cash flow, because the the money that would be going to paying loans can be going to scholarships and and in uh, and, and, and programs, but it also makes their uh, bottom line look a lot better. Uh, this is something that the colleges have been looking for for set for several years, and we're just delighted that we could get this in the COVID uh, relief package. It's uh, it's over a billion. It's over a billion dollars. Um, I talked to one college president and that college will have loan relief in the amount of approximately $50, $50 million. There's other things for colleges generally. With a set-aside for minority-serving institutions, HBCUs get a significant portion of that. So they'll be getting not only the loan relief those that have borrowed money, but also the set-aside under the college fund and be getting college money. So I think the HBCUs will be um, uh, much ab- much better able to withstand the um, uh, pandemic than they were uh, before we passed this bill.
7: Uh, Congressman, uh, to that point, I was on the campus of Morris Brown College today. We're, we're about to show some of that uh, aerial video. Uh, the president said at one point, this was a university, they had 42 acres. They had to sell about 36 of those acres to, to, to pay of issues in the bankruptcy they used to have a number of buildings down there down the two buildings they're trying to get their accreditation they also have to restore those buildings and so your particular point people that's what people don't realize a part of the accreditation process is also how up-to-date are your facilities and so that this is one of the issues uh, i guess it was a uh, two year last year when howard university uh, experienced some issues with the heat pumps Uh, under the ground they they couldn't have students back in those dorms that caused problems and so we talk about educating uh, our folks but the infrastructure is another part of this if you do not have uh, quality buildings and unfortunately you don't have the same endowments that HBCUs to be able to keep up with expenditures when it comes to facilities so this loan forgiveness is a major major deal
18: it's a big deal, and you have to go back to the definition of an HBCU. That is a college that was uh, formed and, ex- and and existed during legal segregation. The state colleges were not getting the money that the white colleges were getting. The um, private colleges were not able to raise money because they were dealing with segregation in the community, uh, and and so they they that's the definition of an HBCU. It's not that the students there are black, but it is historically black and it suffered under segregation. And this will go a long way in helping them uh, recover from the vestiges of, uh, of segregation, uh, making sure that they can come forth and uh, have a much better bottom line and, and, and address their students during this pandemic. A lot of students aren't coming back to college. They're seeing uh, drops in enrollment. Uh, and, and that has been a um, uh, an additional problem caused by the pandemic, so this relief is uh, really coming at a at a, at a at a good time. We this this uh, legislation, we're able to get a lot of things: the Pell grants for prisoners, the loan relief for um, HBCUs. There's another provision that it's hard to even believe it was actually part of the uh, U.S. code, and that is that uh, until the president signs the bill, there is a prohibition about using federal money for transportation for the purpose of school integration. It is illegal to use federal money in transportation for the purpose of integrating the schools. This is 2020, not 1953. Uh, And there is this prohibition. It's been there since 1974. And we're finally getting that out of the US code. we have found that uh, students do much better in integrated settings, achievement gaps are lower. Um, uh, everything is much better. Those that go to integrated schools, uh, lower achievement gap, more likely to go to college, more likely to graduate, more, less likely to be poor after you, after you um, uh, later in life. And yet the studies are showing that segregation in public schools is bad today as it was in the 1960s and getting worse. And we're sitting up here with a provision like that in the US code. Well, it's a first step in trying to make things better. And that was in that uh, removing that prohibition uh, was part of the uh, legislation, along with uh, restoring Pell Grants for prisoners after 26 years and after all of the relief that we'll be be giving uh, historically black colleges and other minority-serving institutions.
7: Congressman Bobby Scott, uh, glad to have you on the show. We appreciate that breakdown. What we're also going to do, Congressman, uh, we're going to uh, spend some time over the next three days. Everybody keeps talking about uh, the COVID relief, but there's a lot of stuff in this bill. There's a lot of stuff that critics uh, don't like, uh, but I do think it's important for us to go through and explain to our listeners those things that are of benefit in this bill for African Americans. And so that's one of the things that we certainly want to do. We appreciate you coming on today's show.
18: Good, thank you. Thank you. Keep up the good work.
7: Oh. Thank you, sir. Folks, gotta go to a break. We come back. We're gonna talk with black charter leaders. Are they happy with Joe Biden's choice for education secretary? Also, the brother who was handcuffed by Virginia police in a mall while having by eating with his family wrongfully handcuffed. They've now apologized, but he also speaks out right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. That is next, back in a moment, broadcasting live from Atlanta.
12: Uh, America is a complicated story of people building a more more perfect union. And if you don't think there's been any change, you should sit down with Andrew Young. Uh, You should sit down from some of the folks in that generation who know the distance we've come. And um, uh, as we continue to push hard, change comes. The other side knows your power, the other side knows your voice. That's why they're engaged in voter suppression. If you weren't so powerful, they wouldn't be trying so hard to stop you from voting. And so you ought to stand up in this defining moment in American history and win the future for all of our children.
13: We're at Mom's Kitchen in Preston, Georgia. It's a family business. I enjoy making people happy, giving them a good meal. But since COVID, we had to close our main dining room. We lost all of that business. And we used to do a lot of caterings. We can't do any of that anymore. David Perdue knew what was about to happen. He was getting classified briefings about the pandemic. But instead of him being concerned about us, he off selling stock. We had no idea we'd have to close our businesses off. We'd lose caterings and So many people died. And then when we needed help the most, he fought against the stimulus checks and to cut unemployment insurance. Purdue needs to come out and Ossoff in. Early voting starts December 14th. You gotta make a plan to vote.
0: I'm John Ossoff and I approve this message.
9: 22, you absolutely do not expect to be diagnosed with cancer. You know that it can always come back. And that's why I'm supporting Raphael Warnock because he understands that healthcare is fundamental to people's lives. I'm sick and tired of being represented by people who are actively working to take away my health care. Raphael Warnock fights for people. That's what he cares about. I'm
12: Raphael Warnock and I approve this message.
15: Georgia, you're not just voting for you, no, you're voting for me, too. Georgia, I got you on my mind. You have got a chance today to keep a U in USA. Oh, Georgia, say, can you see? You could save my democracy. Oh, Georgia, you're not Roger, you're not just Just get out and vote, just two senators in blue, Georgia, you know what to do, Georgia, you're not just voting for you, no, you're voting for me too.
7: All right, folks, uh, President-elect Joe Biden has chosen a new education secretary. He is Miguel uh, Cardona. He's the commissioner of uh, Connecticut Public Schools, uh, and he is going to be the the education secretary uh, under Joe Biden. Last year, the 45-year-old was named Connecticut's top schools official. If confirmed, he will have moved from an assistant superintendent to secretary of education in less than two years. Joining us right now is Dr. Steve Perry. He's the founder of Capital Preparatory School uh, uh, there in Connecticut. Also, they have a school there in Harlem as well. Uh, knows uh, this candidate quite well. Steve, we originally booked you and Margaret Fortune, president and CEO of Fortune School. She'll be joining us shortly uh, to talk about uh, black charter leaders' oppositions to uh, three names are being floated, uh, but they were not chosen by Joe Biden. Uh, share with our folks uh, your thoughts on uh, this choice. Good choice. Lukewarm choice, bad choice by Joe Biden, to be education secretary.
14: First of all, good evening, Roland. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing, brother. You are telling our story to the world and and we can never, ever, ever thank you enough. So first of all, thank you for that. Second, um, Dr. Cardona is um, a relatively new commissioner here in the state of Connecticut. And I'm favorable to him, uh, not because he's been overwhelmingly supportive of school choice, all because he's been overwhelmingly uh, innovative. In neither case have we seen that. Uh, but in all fairness to him, he began his super, or his commissionership uh, really in the midst of a pandemic. So we can only hold him accountable but for so much. We, uh, meaning the NAACP and I, had spent the past six months attempting to work with his office to create a more uh, robust opportunity for Black and Latin people to become teachers in the state of Connecticut. And uh, his office has not been especially effective at executing that, which is terribly disappointing. But my hope is that when he goes to Washington, that he will pick up the mantle of this opportunity and create more uh, spaces for Black and Latin people to become teachers in the United States of America.
7: Margaret Fortune uh, with uh, Fortune Schools out of the West Coast. She joins us via phone. Margaret, your thoughts on this uh, new pick to be education secretary?
19: Well, Roland, I think it represents the um, president-elect Biden stepping out of uh, the fire of um, picking a union leader, frankly. You know, just a few weeks ago, um, we understood that Lily Eccleson Garcia, the past president of NEA, was the, the lead candidate with the Supported the Hispanic Caucus, uh, and the Hispanic Caucus shifted, and uh, and now supports uh, Dr. Miguel Cardona. I think that's a good sign for school reformers across the country that that Biden is not looking to pick that particular fight at confirmation. Um, you know, I think it's uh, uh, he has picked somebody who is uh, has a track record in public education, who is not looking to spend his time picking fights with charter schools, which are public schools, um, and that I anticipate will focus on getting schools reopened safely in Biden's first 100 days. And I think, Roland, that's an agenda we can all get behind, no matter what type of school you're leading.
7: It's also important to I wanna bring in uh, uh, Candace. Uh, uh, Steve, go ahead. uh,
14: It's also important to note that uh, Dr. Cardona went to a school of choice when he was in high school. He went to a vocational technical school. He did not go to his neighborhood school, which is an important distinction because I think he understands how when a child is given the opportunity to attend the school that is best for them, how it could put them on the path to live their dream. And he would appear to be living his. So he has the capacity to have the empathy towards those of us who seek the opportunity for our children to choose the best school for them.
7: I want to bring in uh, Candace and Rena to my panelists. I want to get their thoughts on uh, this pick by Joe Biden. Uh, Candace, I want to start with you. Jeffrey Canada was one of the folks whose name was being mentioned. Uh, that would have been a really huge pick, an inspirational leader, a visionary, somebody who brings the passion as well. Someone with a national profile uh, would have been interesting as well. Uh, uh, and but, but, but to Margaret's point, um, Uh, On that point, uh, you know, union uh, union leaders really thought that Joe Biden was going to pick one of their own uh, to be education secretary. Uh, He chose not to.
9: Yeah. Not only did he choose not to, but he's he chose someone who has been against unions in terms of opening up schools. Let's look at the numbers. Where are we now when it comes to the coronavirus? Everybody wants schools and malls and restaurants to open, but we're now looking at headlines of a virus that's mutated. So that's going to be a a hump for him. On the other hand... Uh, we've got you know Betsy DeVos in this very expensive helicopter view, and now you do have someone who's on the ground walking, understanding what it really means to be in the system. He's got two daughters that are in the public school system. He was the youngest principal ever in the state at the age of 28, so he knows exactly what's going on, and I think that we're going to see a lot of good things from him. Certainly, you had Republicans and Democrats who were wondering, well, who is this guy? But the thing is, they didn't necessarily hate him, they didn't necessarily like him, because they. I think that they understood, let's wait and see from this guy what we're going to get. It's not a bad choice, we just don't know exactly what he's going to do because of his record. It is not a, a very long record in terms of the type of national attention that people have when it comes to solving these issues. But he certainly is in the trenches, and that's what somebody wants. They want somebody who's in the trenches. And as we know, all eyes are on Biden. He selected someone who is a person of color, and he selected someone that believes in the education system and fought hard in that he's the first person to have even graduated from college. So I think he understands it, and I think that a lot of people have a lot of high expectations for him,
10: and we just have to wait and see if they're going to be met. Rena Shaw? Well, I think this is an incredible pick on so many levels because he's not very controversial. I think that's the beauty of this pick in, in essence because he comes from an, a very unique background, being the product of public schools. As Candace mentioned, somebody who at 27 was the youngest principal of schools in Connecticut in the entire state that says something when you're a product of public schools and you've spent your career talking about how you want to strengthen those schools and you want to embrace the diversity that's out there from people who grow up in projects to half a million dollar homes you really understand what needs to change about U.S. education. So I have full faith that Dr. Cardona is going to do that. Of course, I love the fact that he is the first Latino person to be appointed, uh, not just state education commissioner as well in Connecticut. And 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 so this Biden pick, I fully believe, is strong because it really goes back again to Biden really wanting to be a unifier in these picks, really wanting to be um somebody who who finds people that, that really I believe can work in that moderate middle lane, bringing people together. And I think it's best evidenced by people who ran charter schools in Connecticut. Uh, they say that he was very fair. He wasn't anti-charter. He wasn't pro-charter. He was incredibly fair from his post. And I think that is a beautiful thing. I'm somebody that really wants to see school choice enacted. I'm not a Betsy DeVos type, but I know the arguments that conservatives have brought against the U.S. uh, public education that we have and against the Department of Education in general. Uh, I know a lot of CONSERVATIVES GENERALLY WANT TO DEFUND THAT DEPARTMENT. CARDONA, I THINK, IS GOING TO BRING A TONE uh, IN HEADING UP THAT DEPARTMENT THAT REALLY UNIFIES PEOPLE BEHIND THE IDEA, AGAIN, OF JUST WE REALLY NEED STRONG PUBLIC EDUCATION IN THIS COUNTRY BECAUSE OUR STUDENTS NEED TO BE ABLE TO COMPETE WITH THE SUPERPOWERS THAT ARE RISING IN THE WORLD, LIKE CHINA AND INDIA. AND THOSE STUDENTS OUT THERE, STEM IS EVERYTHING FOR THEM. I WANT TO SEE THAT HAPPEN IN OUR PUBLIC SCHOOLS HERE. DR. CARDONA IS GOING TO BE A VERY GOOD PERSON IN THIS ROLE. I look
7: to watching him grow. I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily worried about uh, a, a frankly controversial pick, Steve. I think uh, big and bold is important, and I think what often happens is and this happens a lot with presidents. And I go ahead and say this here when we talk about uh, whenever you hear p- p- can't, uh, politicians run, you talk about the importance of veterans in the military, yet yeah, typically, frankly, presidents pick weak ass people uh, to be the head of veteran affairs. Uh, in the department, when you talk about education. They always talk about, oh, education. I want to be the education president. It's the most important thing. Mm, But it's not considered to be one of those picks. To me, this is one of those things where, again, you put your money where your mouth is. If you really think it's a priority, you go big or you go home.
14: And I would think that, I don't think Dr. Cardona would consider himself going big. I don't think Dr. Cardona would expect himself to be a person who comes in and revolutionizes education. The notion of public education is often spoken of in in loving terms, but the public education system has failed Black and Latin people since its inception. So I'm not in a hurry to protect such a system, and I think it's foolish for anyone to defend such a system, especially knowing that it is currently destroying the livelihoods of millions of Black and Latin children. I want someone who understands what the data is telling us. The data is telling us when you provide children with the opportunity to choose a school that is best for them, they tend to do better in that school. Fact, just 15% of all schools in the United States of America are magnet and charter schools, yet they represent 65% of all the top-performing schools in the the U.S. News & World Report top-performing high schools uh, uh, matrix. So why then wouldn't we create more opportunities like that? The reason is because we have this bizarre affection towards... The neighborhood school, knowing that every single time it's come before the United States uh, Supreme Court, what we find is that it is the epitome, meaning the neighborhood school, the epitome of racism and classism and, and removing the opportunity that children have. So my hope is that Dr. Cardona um, looks around and recognizes that other children want what he had, which is to choose the school that was best for him, and then to choose the colleges that were best for him, not to be cordoned off into the schools that were just closest to his home. That public school idea is a dead animal that we need to let lie.
19: Roland, I Marta. also think that this, uh, yeah, I also think that this pick of Dr. Codona signals that we may see more of the education policy, particularly in this time of the pandemic, being driven out of the White House. Um, you know to your point this is a, a pick who is uh, an unknown a relative unknown out, out, out outside of of course the state of Connecticut uh, and who not long ago was an assistant superintendent of uh, a school district with 9000 students um, you know to, by by way of comparison you know some of our largest school districts uh, in uh, in the United States have anywhere from 50,000 to 500,000 students. So, this is not a pick that I see really driving policy, but maybe somebody who would be um, executing policy that is driven out of the White House. Uh, there are a lot uh, that say that Dr. Jill Biden, given her role as an educator, uh, will have an outsized influence in education policy uh, in America. Uh, we'll see what that looks like. You know, Does it look like uh, Hillary Clinton? Uh, With healthcare policy. Um, If it does, we hope that she will fare better than that. Um, We we also want to point out that the Biden transition team has been going uh, through great lengths to have stakeholder meetings in the area of education. Uh, I've had the opportunity to participate in two such meetings. This type of pick tells me that they were listening. Uh, What we'd really like to see from the charter school space is an expansion of charter schools, uh, like what we saw under President Obama, (coughs) where charter school enrollment increased by 1.7 million students. But this time around, we'd really like to see an emphasis on leaders of color, uh, Black and Latino leaders who are starting charter schools um, out of an act of self-determination. It is promising uh, that we won't see a a fight uh, in the uh, uh for confirmation like we would have with some of the other picks uh is this a pick that is like an Arnie duncan under obama where you know there's a there's a clearly formed ideology there and uh and a, and uh, an education policy that's you know based on the work of of icons like jeffrey canada with the harlem J- uh, children's zone no uh is this uh even a pick uh like um uh, you know, under uh, under Bush, um, you know, uh, with uh, no child left behind, where there's a, a clear policy there. No, I think we are in uh, entering into a stage of uh, of recovery and uh, and trying to figure out how we can reopen safely. Um, I know that in California, where we have had a turn for the worse in terms of our uh, COVID-19 cases and our deaths due to COVID-19. The schools have been steadily preparing for reopening. Um, It is a curious thing without a national policy around reopening schools, how this is playing out at the local level. My local mall is open for business. Um, My local retail operation is open for business. But the schools uh, are not. Uh, Even though we have gone through a tremendous amount of preparation, and also been uh, had our plans reviewed by the county health department and meet with county health officials uh, every week. Um, There's a litany of things I can tell you that we have done to prepare uh, to be able to operate. Uh, Not that I'm saying that 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 is the first priority of of every educator in in America, and we certainly want to do it safely. Um, But I think that there's a need for a national policy so that we can have some consistency rather than it playing out differently uh, for, from one jurisdiction to the next.
14: Sorry you went out,
7: Roland. Steve, what, what do you yeah.
14: want to see from this pick? What I would like to see from this pick is for him to think boldly, to understand that Each child deserves an opportunity to expand their opportunity beyond their neighborhood. And so I would like for him to take a look at the um, race to the top and understand that that is the most powerful uh, holdover from the Obama administration. It changed the lives of literally millions of families simply by creating incentives Within the the state department, I the, uh, the uh, Department of Education, whereby people could gain access to revenue, were they to create opportunities within their respective states. It's that kind of expectation that I have of him. Uh, he knows what it is that he needs to do in that space, and my hope is that he looks across the nation and recognizes the the opportunity that he has.
7: Um, Candace and Rena. Uh, Rena, you said you're excited to see what he does. Uh, your, uh, out of all the things he, this, this pick to focus on, what do you want him to focus on as education secretary?
10: Well, I'm very much in line with Dr. Perry right there. Uh, with two very young children, my, my daughter just turned five last month, and so therefore she's not eligible to start kindergarten until next fall. I've been thinking a lot about what I will do with my now five-year-old come January. It is very frustrating for a parent like me to have to have a balance, a five-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old at home. All this year, virtual learning has not worked for either my children. Them not having uh, an education uh, virtually or in person, I have seen, has been a detriment. It has put the onus on me as a parent to really figure out what my child needs. And so I, again, very strong proponent of school choice here, but it has really changed my attitude about what our schools do, how they function. So I'm, I'm right there with Dr. Perry on what he wants um, from this pick. I think there is evidence uh, in, in the now Secretary of Education's past in Connecticut to show that he is somebody that, that does want school choice. I think, again, you just have to read between the lines. You have to look at his very short tenure uh, to see what he's done in Connecticut. It is small, but I'm, I'm encouraged that he understands diversity. That really matters, again, when we're talking about Black and Latino students. I'm, of course, from the Asian-American community. We are a very different community when we talk about education. Um, our immigrant parents come here, and it is just a totally different uh, ballgame for us. So by no means am I equating what the Asian-American experience is with Black and Latino students. Uh, this this is something the problem is. I think Arnie Duncan has written about it just recently, speaking of, I know he's just wrote, written an op-ed about how education is ch- changing at such a fast pace. That is incredibly difficult, difficult, and that is what this now Secretary of Education is going to have to keep up with. But one thing I see in Biden choosing him and being married to Dr. Jill Biden, who is at the community college level, actually just near my home here in Northern Virginia, um, is where she'll teach. But, but uh, I think what I see here is him sort of saying, Dr. Jill Biden's going to steer the ship when it comes to the higher education stuff. We know that Biden really likes Sweeping reforms such as uh, finding a way to make uh, college tuition free uh, for those earning under one hundred twenty-five thousand. I believe those families. He wants. Uh, he wants that for those college students. Uh, but I, I. But I also see in again this pick of Card- uh, Dr. Cardona is is Biden saying let's really focus on reopening. And that's all I've heard, Roland, from the longest time, from the right, is reopen our schools, reopen our schools. And so that's why I'm sort of led to believe that this is a good approach. This is probably the best pick for the moment. Candace.
9: Well, I think that reopening schools is one of those things that continues to be hotly debated. As I said before, with the virus mutating so much, the virus is really in charge. But on the other hand, in terms of here are some of the things I want to see Dr. Cardona do. I want to see him go in and change what we see in the school system when it comes to diversity. And I mean that in terms of teachers, I mean that in terms of what this classrooms look like, because let's take New York City, for example. We see that the mayor has changed school choice and programs in, in, in that regard so that people can go where they want to, that they're not confined by maybe uh, some type of geographic uh, uh, destination. They're not confined by the gentrification that's taking over so many neighborhoods, because when that happens, we still see that the classrooms are either mostly all white or mostly all black and this doesn't make any sense because when that happens we see the, the, the level of education change. So I think that he knows first and foremost what it means to be a minority in this country and what it means to have a school teacher that looks like you, that talks like you, and that can actually instill you know words of wisdom and hope for someone that is a, a brown or black child in America. And that's going to change everything. We talked before about what did these newsrooms look like. Look like It's going to change that because then we're going to start with younger people and we're going to tell them, you can be a journalist. We're going to tell them, this is what you need to do. So it all ties into each other. But di- diversifying these classrooms has got
14: to be key.
12: It just well, has this to be
14: is, key. Well, and this is one of the areas that Dr. Cardona has fallen short of. In fact, while almost 40% of the children who attend Connecticut's public schools are Black or Latino, only 4% of the state's teachers are Black. Only 4% of the state's teachers are Black under a commissioner who is Latino. He was presented by the NAACP a well-thought-out strategy to create more opportunities that his team said would in fact increase the number of Black and Latin people who currently teach within 12 months. And we were not able to get it done. So this is not me talking about what I think. This is me participating in those conversations over the past six months. And so simply because a person is of color, it does not mean that they're going to necessarily move forward the agenda of people of color. It is our obligation as people of color and our allies to make sure that we hold this brother to account, to make sure that he does what is necessary to create the, the, um, the route to becoming a teacher. So specifically, one of the things that we talked about is in Connecticut, in order to become an elementary school teacher, you have to pass five praxis examinations. Five. Why? When we know the majority of African American children go to schools in which they're not prepared for the state uh, for standardized assessments. And so when they become uh, college students, they don't become much more prepared. And when they graduate, they don't become more prepared either. So we need to push Dr. Cardona to put his policies where he says his heart is, which in this case, I have firsthand account that this is an area where he has not met the expectations of the community and could. Either before leaving the state of Connecticut andor upon arriving in Washington, DC, make it his business. This is not a charter conversation, this is not a magnet conversation, this is not even a school choice conversation. This is a equity and equity conversation, and one that is not being taken seriously throughout the rest of the country because too few people are in classrooms where the classes are taught by black people. I'll finish here. In 70 of the 149 school districts in the state of Connecticut. You can go and not ever have a black teacher, 70, in the state of Connecticut where Dr. Cardona is currently commissioner. It's unacceptable and it can be corrected.
10: Dr. Perry, I hear you on the issues completely. And I think you bring up some good points about data. But what I read is that Dr. Cardona has been focused on equity issues in some ways. I don't think he's been entirely deficient because under his tenure, Connecticut became the first state to require high schools to offer black and Latino studies. It happened That's before a...
14: he became commissioner and it happened in the legislature. It had nothing to do with him.
10: Well, well, thank you for clarifying because I read un- it was under his tenure and that he was also chairman of the state task force that examined achievement gaps of those populations. So I'm not sure. Again. Uh, if no, no, I ab- appreciate what you're saying. So and,
14: and I can tell you, source, deeper, I apologize. Like, Senator, yeah, Senator Doug McCrory, who is the education chair uh, in the Senate and others, made it their business. These brothers and sisters made it their business to make Connecticut the first state in the nation to require uh, black studies. But let's be clear, it's going to be taught by white people. So if 4% <laughs> of the teachers in the state of Connecticut are, are, are black, <laughs> then who's teaching it?
7: Lee Perry, Margaret Fortune. I thank both of you for joining us. Thank you so very much.
19: Thank you. Thank you, Adam.
7: Folks, a new report from the U.S. Air Force Inspector General shows Black service members are more likely to be investigated, arrested, face disciplinary charges, and be discharged for misconduct. The report also found Black members of the force, uh, of the first of all, of the Air Force and the Space Force, are less likely to be promoted. To hire enlisted and officer ranks. Although the report gives examples and data showing racial disparity exists for black service members, the report does not give an explanation as to why black service members are discriminated against. That's kind of important. Folks, gonna go to a real quick break. We come back, we're gonna talk with the black man who Virginia Beach Police handcuffed to question him, saying that he may have been using a stolen credit card. The man was eating with his family. He said he was embarrassed. Well, he joins us next to share his thoughts, and we'll have his reaction to the police issuing an apology to him. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Atlanta, where we are covering the Georgia Senate runoff races. We'll be back
20: in a moment. This generation, which gets so much inspiration from entertainment, Mm -hmm. you know, this generation is influenced. I mean, every generation has their influence. But I would argue, by and large, when you talk about Harry Belafonte or you talk about... You know how it was, you know, in the '60s, '70s, and even '80s. There was, you know, you had the entertainers, you you had the church, you had the activists. In our day and time, you know, the church is somewhat losing its 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 influence. Entertainment influence is growing. The activists are losing their influence. So where do most, you know, this younger generation go? They go to entertainment. You know, and so the influencers, entertainment can actually move the needle. And when you see people become active, I love how this younger group of people are saying, "Wait a minute, we don't like what just happened with Kavanaugh." We're going to do something about it. We don't like the fact that there's no gun control. We're going to do something about it. And I do think that as tragic as these events are, they are becoming more galvanizing to get this younger group of voters, which is so influential, to get out and do what we know they can do, which is to help move the needle in a a massive way.
7: For Virginia Beach Police. Are investigating to see why officers detained an innocent black man at the Lynn Haven Mall on Saturday. In a video shared online, officers are seen handcuffing Jamar Mackey, who was eating with his family in the mall's food court. Police escorted Mackey outside and said he matched the description of a suspect who was a black male with dreads that was wearing all black and was with a boy wearing red. His wife shot this video. Folks, again, if this is triggering for you, Please turn away. It's five minutes and 11 seconds. We wanted to show you the full video before we interview Mr. Mackey. Watch this.
6: What, row, did, this yeah, what, what did he do? We it's just family. Family.
4: talked
6: to you, okay? But he did You're nothing. Y'all got the wrong person. We black don't even have a black truck.
16: A black truck, bro?
6: We don't have when a black truck.
16: Mean? We just came but to the mall. What did he say? But you know, nah, I know. I record this. I'm I, taking it the
6: court, Okay, but don't snap. Serious? But what did
16: he do? No, no. You not let me talk to you? You like you got these cuffs on me. Babe,
6: don't um, snap. You, take me to it's the fine. Front, but what did he take do? Take to the
17: front now. Can you don't tell, tell us?
6: We just about came about with now. our family. We don't even have a black truck. Jamar, don't snap. Wait a second. Come here. Come report this. Report. Follow them. Follow them. What? did he do? What? are you doing? What? are you doing? Jamar, what are you doing? Y'all fucking racist. We ain't here with our family. Are you serious? What? No, y'all. This is so fucking get embarrassing. Off, you know, and get these cuffs. We with our family. I got my baby here, newborn. Why do y'all have him? him well, but what did he do? He didn't do anything. I know. Oh, I my ass. If you, we if our fucking, fucking kids. Okay. You don't do that. That is so you know what's going on in the fucking world today. We were our fucking kids. We don't do nothing with men. We didn't do nothing. Over do you me? know how embarrassing it's that is? Your man just said You can't fucking... You
4: can't still on me? He might be the
6: wrong one. Oh, it damn. is the wrong person. We told I'm you. You asked Go. him about a black truck and we said we... Y'all didn't even give him... No!
4: Okay.
6: Y'all didn't really? give him a chance to explain. You, you said, do you have a black truck? He doesn't... We don't even drive a black can't. truck. I mean, that nigga's a roughy one. He is? We're our fucking kids. What am I... No! Yeah, you ask questions first! No. Really but y'all panic. fucked up! Please. But y'all fucked up! You don't do that! No, We're, We're with our kids, but you I ask understand. questions first! You understand. didn't even give you them you a words to ask a fucking question! No! You can't expect him not to be upset. He's
16: on me. He comes you can't, to me can't no expect him to be play with, play with, with our fucking kids in the mall. That is so is embarrassing.
6: So Are you serious? You. But you ask questions, I get it. If you don't fit the profile, of somebody else. But know. ask no. him a no. no. question. No. No. What's, What's his name? You didn't even ask him a question. Stop and come. I'm going to see going to see me again.
15: But you ask me. You can't.
6: But you don't do this. We're with our kids. You think he'll forget that? You think my son will forget that? I know you're going to
4: off me. And I would like to. I'm going to lay my behind. I know you Please, Jamar,
6: let him take them all. This man
4: came to arrest me, me while I'm eating no words. And I would like to. Explain. No, I ain't no explaining. Okay. You're free to go, and I would like yo, to Yo, yo, just, just get these fucking cuffs off me, yes, and don't sir. talk to me, motherfucker. Yes, sir. Come on, let's go. I got go. your name. What's your name? Let's go. We're leaving. leaving. All right, I'm
1: going to
16: see your ass again, bitch. It's all right. Just what's, like, what's wrong with on, you, man? What you want? Me? no questions.
6: It's, it's Don't move. Don't move. I would like move. to move. explain to you what's going hey, on. Wait, I don't give a fuck what's going on. I want to know. I want to explain to you what's going Take him. Go ahead. Y'all go. Y'all go. Explain you go. to me don't what happened. I, I want to know. We got a description of someone that was using stolen credit cards, okay? That, that person I got it. Let me wearing, is a black
0: male with dreads and was wearing all black and was with a boy that was wearing red, okay? I could show you the
16: case. He's wearing, He's wearing all black. So this is him right over here. Come on, yo. Black man with
6: dreads. Another black male with dreads. But the thing is, y'all-
4: I sincerely apologize. It was oh, a minute Oh I mean y'all just, that was so embarrassing If it. he was if he was using, man are oh, you putting me a hacker what well, I'm thinking of that it. Light for us then I went to talk Go to him on, about it. I would have just taken him into custody and detained him, okay? No, nah, bro. I understand it's, you do, put it's back back. It do you have a car? sincerely apologize.
5: sincerely apologize. Do
6: you have a and that's how y'all do. It, it was you, That's what we're fighting for now. That's what y'all do to us. That's why we fight for this shit now. I understand. Can I have a car This how we get treated in 2020. In 2020. That's how
4: I get treated, bro. You have the right to be upset.
6: That's, that's why we fighting. that's why they fucking y'all up! That's all right, babe. That's all right. That's why, bitch! That's good. all right, it's, it's fine, we leaving. I'll just, I'll take a name and a number. Twenty-twenty, nigga! That's are fucking I, I, somebody 50, I can contact 70s. outside of this environment 40, right now. So she can have my name, Sarge. Okay. The no. fuck we march for! The fuck we say Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter, that's why we say it. Yes, sir. Look how y'all treat us. Like in front of people. Like I'm the wrong motherfucker. It's fine, baby. businesses. That's so. all right. Just give
1: her the, fourth
6: Black Lives Matter, y'all see why we fight? Fuck, oh, niggas.
15: Name.
6: Come on, man. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
7: how they do on fucking 2020. We're joined by Jamar Mackey and his fiancee, Chantel Koval, who filmed the ordeal. First of all, glad to have both of you on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Um, Jamar, I got to start with you. Um, you hear the officers. We understand. Let me explain. And which is a lot different reaction we've seen from other white police officers. But the reality is this. You were there eating. And what folks don't get, it is traumatic. It is embarrassing. It's degrading to have a handcuff slapped on you. And no point did they even talk with you before doing. Walk us through what happened when they walked up. Did did they just simply
16: walk up, see you, and say, we're cuffing you? (laughs) You can say that what basically happened you know I, I was sitting down eating lunch with my family we just sat down and you know first it was an under i don't know if he was a, a mall cop or what undercover but the guy in the gray you see him in the video he comes to me and he's just asking like um is that your black truck outside i said no it's not my black truck you got the wrong guy man i, I don't drive in a black truck so he stays there. I swear, I seen you driving that black truck, man. You you showing sure you know how about that black truck? No, I don't drive a black truck, sir. So as he's still standing there, on um, I see the police coming through the door. So he's walked through the door. We make eye contact. The guy asks again, "That's won't you? I seen driving that black truck." As soon as he said that again, I couldn't even answer him. The cop. He, he walks past him and, you know, he, he looks at me and just grabs my arm and kneels down, grabs my arm, kneels down and says, don't move. You're under arrest. Do not resist. It didn't explain nothing to me. Only thing this guy, undercover guy who wasn't even in uniform or nothing, he just asked me if I drove a black truck. So it, it's like. Why are you arresting me? What, what's going on? What's up with the black dude? Do I need to answer some questions for you? But why are you arresting me? He's still telling me, stop talking. Don't move. Don't resist. We'll talk when we get to the car. So that's what I'm telling OK, well, take me to the front and please explain something to me. Because he did it in the whole food court with the whole, you know, it's holiday season. So the whole mall is looking. It's a big crowd. The whole mall is looking. It's so embarrassing. Like, everybody's looking at me and my family. So that's when we walk outside and... um. You know, that's when the cops are basically say it's 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 the wrong guy. As soon as I get outside, and I I, I look to the right, and they have the suspect, I guess who did it. They have him to the right, um, at, like on the side of the building, and they're just questioning him with with pen and, and pad. He's not in handcuffs, but come to find out, he's the guy who did it. <laughs> but I walk outside in handcuffs from a lieutenant with stripes on his uniform and everything. But he put me in handcuffs with no questions. You know, he just put me in handcuffs. So. Yeah, it was really embarrassing. It, it, it's like just watching that video. It just it just brings it back. It makes me feel like I'm right back at it, man. Me and my fiance, my son. Like it, it was just a bad experience, man. It, like terrible.
7: Chantal, I want to um, uh, Chantal, I want to go to you because we hear you on the video, babe. Keep it easy. What is going through your mind? Are you thinking about other videos, how this thing escalates and knee in the back, taser, guns pulled out, being shot?
21: Yes, that's exactly what I thought about first. It's almost like we have to, we get trained and, you know, we, uh... It's almost like I I felt like I learned how to what to do in a situation from watching all these terrible experiences with people losing their lives and, you know, being wrongfully handled by the police. So as soon as I I mean, I know this is my fiance. We live together, we have two kids together. I know everything about him. So I knew it was nothing else besides the mall that he had done, you know, that would have caused for his arrest. So instantly I'm like, okay, this is wrong, but let me You know, I want you to be calm because any movement, any wrong movement you give them, the slightest bit of, you know, resistance or, you know, anything that you give them, I, I know where this can head, you know. So my immediately I'm just like, you know, don't snap. You know, I want him to stay calm. I had our, you know, we had a newborn and our oldest son um, with us. And I'm just like, this is not happening. You know, this is not about to end bad if I have anything to do with it. So. You know, it was very emotionally... It was very emotional for me. um, But I just felt like I had to be the strong person in this because he had no choice but to act the way he did, you know, um, and to react the way he did. So, you know, I just wanted to try and be that calm for him, even though, um, you know, I wasn't as calm as I could have been, you know, um, that was what I was just trying to do, Just keep him calm so things wouldn't escalate.
7: Jamar... um... We, we, we hear you, I mean we, we hear and see your anger and as somebody who has never experienced that, as somebody who has been pulled over by cops. Luckily nothing has happened. I think what I felt, the anger also was they did this in front of your children. Now, your kids, they now have a visual image, even though it was wrong, of cops slapping the handcuffs on you. That is something no father wants their children to have to witness, especially not in this age. Uh, yesterday, we had Ben Crump on, who said, since the, since the murder of George Floyd, 95 black people have been killed by cops. And that's since May. <laughs> mm. Wow.
16: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, rolling this big because you know my son was sitting actually right next to me. He was sitting right next to me. He seen the cop putting the cuffs on me. He, he you might can't hear the video before the video. He's asking, what What did he do? What did my dad do? Yeah,
21: that's all he kept saying. Is what did
16: he? That's <laughs> all he kept saying. What did my dad do? Why are you arresting my dad in front of me? Like, what did he do? You know. So of course it's traumatizing. Like it was traumatizing. Like. He's going to always remember that. Then, you know, he's going to always remember that. So, yeah, it's tough, man, that, that it happened in front of my kids, that that it happened in front of a, a place of business that I promoted my business at, I gave my business cards to, and that a place that my son, we drop him off at that mall with his friends, and, you know, they go to Dave, so Dave & Buster's in the mall, they go to Dave & Buster's, walk the mall, you know. It's a place that he, he he's really goes to. We're, we're right around the corner from the mall. So it, and and all this happens at a place where we we go almost every week, we at least every other week. So it's like it's embarrassing for him and it's traumatizing for him also.
7: Yeah, that's definitely our main oh,
21: concern. What kind, what what kind, what kind of? Uh, do, Chantel, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying that's our. Our biggest focus, you know, with all of this was, you know, our son, you know, we have a, a small baby, but our 13-year-old son, because he's going to high school, and like Jamar was saying, you know, um, we that's literally something the kids in our area do. They want to get dropped off at the mall, you know, go, we give them money, they go shop, and they go play games at Dave & Buster's. But now it's just like, you know, he, he's traumatized from the event, and You know it's just like we don't want to go back you know we passed by today we're just like hey we we didn't finish christmas shopping and Mm -hmm. we we look at the mall because it's on our way to our office and we were just like you know i don't even feel like i'll ever want to go into that mall or any other mall again and it's unfortunate because we're like five minutes away from the mall it's just crazy like just watching the video before we came on live with you i just felt real emotional already again because we just keep having to relive this moment. Of course, it is viral, and you know it's around the internet. But you know, as we sit and have to watch through the entire video, I mean, I get the same exact feelings all over again. And um, you know, I just wonder about the longevity, the, the long, the long-term effects on my son. You know, um, so we just want to make sure he's okay.
7: Um, this was a statement released by Virginia Beach Police uh, Chief. Uh, Paul Newdigate. I I just want to get y'all reaction to it. This is what uh, was released on December 19th. A Virginia Beach police officer was investigating a reported offense at a local shopping mall. He approached, subsequently handcuffed, and escorted an individual who matched the description of the reported suspect out of the mall before releasing him a short time later. A video recording of the interaction has been shared on social media, and the VPPD has initiated a review of the incident to determine the propriety of the response in this manner. Quote, certainly anyone would be upset about being detained for something they didn't do, said Chief Newdigate. While the video shows the officers stayed calm and respectful throughout the brief encounter, we must ensure the situation merits the response. We're gathering all the facts to evaluate the incident so we can address the concerns people have raised. Jamar?
16: I mean, honestly... I don't accept it until I see changes done, you know. And, and yeah, of course he say that officer was calm, but when he walked up on me and yanks my arm behind my own, behind the chair, tell me don't move, don't resist. That's not calm to me. That's not how you handle. Business. That's not how you do as a police officer. I mean, it's not like I was. Sus- they suspected a murderer. They suspected a, a credit card theft. And you come behind me and just grab my arm, so it's like, yeah, you, you say that. Of course, you gotta. Look. But I don't Sometimes I see change, and I see justice, because I'm born and raised in Virginia Beach. This doesn't just happen to me; it happens to everybody. I've been so you much support. Thank you for the support. But it's just so much support because it, it happens to a, a lot of black males out here with dreads. Black men,
13: period. Black men.
7: You period. said in the video. You said in. The, you said in the video, Jamar y'all are going to hear from me again uh have you and Chantel have y'all hired an attorney are y'all looking at legal options uh when it comes to uh what what happened to you
21: we're definitely looking you know into our legal options um there's a lot of questions that we have a lot of questions and as of now no one has reached out to us i mean um he made a statement you know which to me i believe the statement was only made you know because he had to make a statement at this point because there are so many questions. Um, it's viral. So, you know, I don't know so, so, hold the on, so be real quick here. Enough.
7: Chantel, Chantel, uh-huh. Chantel, Chantel, mm-hmm. Chantel, you're saying mm-hmm. that you're saying that you have you and Jamar have not heard from the police chief. This was a statement that he released, but y'all have not heard personally from anyone with the police department, or have you heard from anybody with the Virginia Beach City Council, the mayor, anyone?
21: Um, we did have one person, um, that, you know, reached out to us, you know, um, to make sure that our family was good, um, Aaron Rouse. Um, so he did check us, check up on us to make sure, you know, that things were, you know, good. So we definitely appreciated him. Um, but that's about it. As far as the chief of police and the city of Virginia Beach, we haven't heard from them. No
16: one reached out, but it, It can't be too hard to find my number if, you know, you guys found it, you know, like everybody else found it, but they haven't reached out. But I guess they expect me to look at their apology that they did live and just expect that's reaching out. They didn't reach out, they didn't call, they didn't leave a voicemail, they haven't reached out to my my fiancé. So it's like, when do you want us to to really take y'all serious? So it's, it's honestly, they haven't reached out at all. Candace, i put my panelists here, Candace
7: and Rena. Candace first, do you have a question uh, for Jamar uh, and or Chantel?
9: Well, it, it, less of a question and more of a statement in that I see a number of things going on here in terms of, you know, infliction of emotional distress, having your civil rights violated, and then you were detained improperly. So there's a lot that you can go forth with, I think, and have, have a, an amazing case as you should, because... Part of the trauma when someone says to you, hey, just keep your cool, we're going to arrest you, that's often just a preface to many people being killed. So their trauma starts right away, and then it spreads in the family, not just for this generation, for generations to come. So I see a a, a lot of force in the case that you have ahead of you.
16: Thank
7: you. Yes. Uh, Rena Shaw.
10: Well, Candice brings up excellent points, I think, and I, I think as, as a parent as well, I mean, my, my heart just goes out to you all. And obviously, that video for me was extremely disturbing. I just really felt the pain of the moment because that's what catching events like this that are so that should be so rare in society. That's what these videos do. They open up sort of the experience. And I'm just I'm wondering for the both of you, how do you really walk away from this? How how do you. Um, well, let me back up for a second and say, I mean, is there anything that really hits your mind and makes you think that you could have done anything differently in the moment, communication-wise? Like, is there anything you would have said differently? Um, how would you act in the future if this kind of thing, gosh, were to sadly happen again? Because I- I've had a tense moment, and it was nowhere near this with law enforcement. And it sort of changed in my mind the gears of sort of, what could I have said differently? And then what will I say next time? And I'm just sort of wondering if you guys have
16: anything on that as far as that question you know when someone just walks up to you and throw handcuffs on you it's hard to to pick up your reaction you know you can't just say oh let me be calm or let me you know it just hits you there until it happens to you you wouldn't know so it's just like of course you know
21: it's easier said, you know, than done. Everybody oh, yeah. wants to okay. say, you know, um, and of course, if if you asked us today, if you planned, if you told us today that this was going to happen tomorrow, that's one thing. But you don't know, you know, you, you, you don't know until you're in that situation. And I believe that he had every reason to act the way that he acted, you know, with the situation.
9: Jamari, I, I did have a question. I'm wondering in terms of what. The police chief or anybody on the force could do to make you whole, whole. I think a lawsuit's coming. But in terms of right now, what's what's the Christmas gift you want from the force to make you at least uh, try to, to to make some progress in dealing with this?
16: Well, one of the main things is I just hope that that doesn't happen no more. Where you know it has to be some change where you can't just walk up on someone. And put him in handcuffs without questioning him, especially when it's just a suspect. It's not that he's not, you don't even know if it's him or not. So it'll make me, it'll make a big difference and it'll make a change if, like, if it's a law, something that comes in handy that you can't do that to anyone, black, hmm, white.
6: Yeah, I think,
16: I th- it just yeah, should I think be, you hit the nail be, on the head. Do that. You can't do that, yeah. it, especially in front of one family. And then you don't have no mask on. It's COVID out right now. You have no mask on, you're in my face telling me, don't move, don't resist. And, you know, so it's like, it should be laws. You can't do that, especially with COVID going on and, and everything going on right now. You right. shouldn't just be able to put your hands on somebody and put them in cuffs, especially put them in cuffs.
9: And what kind of police work was this? I Jamar, mean, are you... if they thought that... Oh.
7: No, no, go ahead, go ahead.
9: I was gonna say, what kind of police work was this? They were looking for someone who was riding a black van, right, or a black car. All they had to do was quietly follow if they chose from afar to see if he got in a black car. I mean, it seems like there were a lot of options that, again, once you kick off somebody arresting you and just getting those feelings um, going in terms of, I don't know what's going to happen to me and I don't trust you because I've seen what happened to you know Ahmad Aubrey. well, then I- I'm really, I'm scared. And so the reaction that you had, I think, was completely appropriate. I don't think that anybody would have acted any differently because your life was in danger. But I think it was also very poor police work.
16: And I definitely agree with you. And I appreciate you for your support.
7: Jamar, real quick, uh, you said you have a business. What kind of business do you have?
16: Well, I have uh Matrix Sanitizer Solutions. I, I do professional sprays for COVID, you know, uh flu, you know, with all this every disease going on. So that's what I do right now. And um my wife, she has her own health care, home health care, matrix healthcare. So, you know, we're just business owners. we're just trying to prosper. And, you know, like I said, I pass cars out in that mall. A lot of people know me that mall from passing cars and me being in uniform in there. And you put me in handcuffs and and, and walk me outside that mall in front of the whole mall. So it's it, it paid a big part, you know, on me. That's why another reason why I looked at it like I'm an old business owner. You know, you could have at least question me or anything, you know? Yep.
7: Well, Jamar Mackey, uh, Chantel Coble, I know a lot of media folks have been trying to reach out to y'all. I certainly appreciate uh, y'all accepting our invitation to talk here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. Uh, I know uh, I saw one story, NBC News and others uh, want y- wants, uh, y'all to talk. And so we appreciate y'all coming and talking. This black owned show first. <laughs> yes, thank sir.
21: you. Yeah, we appreciate
7: you as well. Yes, Love your sir. platform. Thank you. Yes, thanks Love. for reaching out. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jamar Mackie, uh, right. Chantel Koval. Yeah. Uh, thank you so very much. Right. Thank, thanks a lot. I uh, want to thank uh, Rena Shaw and Candace as well as Joseph Williams been being on our panel today. Great guest today, folks. This is why this show matters. The ability to be able to give folks like Jamar and Chantel an opportunity to share their story, not in a four or three minute package or five or six minute segment for them to really walk through and explain uh, what happened to them, what they endured. That's why we need y'all to support what we are doing. We're here in Georgia covering the Georgia runoff race. We were on the ground today, live streaming when John Olsoff went and voted. Uh, we also, of course, were there uh, for that uh, news conference and discussion at Morris Brown College. You can see that entire conversation on our YouTube channel. It's all there. We sh- live streamed that as well. Folks, we are about being an independent media company speaking to our issues, our concerns. When you look at today's show, Congressman Bobby Scott breaking down the billion dollars in that COVID relief bill uh, that will uh, forgive loans to, uh, to HBCUs. Talking about, of course, Pell Grants going to those who are incarcerated. Steve Perry, Margaret Fortune talking about the education pick. Cliff Albright talking about the work they're doing in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, battling uh, folks who want to steal our right to vote. Listen to African-Americans, Eric Wesson and Sheila Brooks talk about the Kansas City Star apologizing for their coverage of African-Americans over the last decades. This is why this show matters and so please join our bring the funk fan club uh you can donate right there on youtube or facebook you can of course also go to cash app dollar sign, rm unfiltered paypal.me forward slash r martin unfiltered venmo.com is rm unfiltered zell is roland at rolandsmartin.com you can also send a money order to New Vision Media. That's NU Vision Media Inc., 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. Folks, don't forget, we want you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, click uh, subscription, as well as turn on your notifications on YouTube and Facebook so you are notified. And those of you who are watching on Periscope, uh, Twitter's gonna be shutting Periscope down in March. We want y'all to stop watching us on Periscope. We're going to keep streaming there until March. We want y'all to go over to our YouTube channel uh, to watch this show uh, every single day. So, appreciate all of you uh, for being here. Uh, It's so much other news we we, we had to cover. uh, Real quick, go to my iPad here. Uh, This just in the Columbus mayor. The Columbus mayor announced. Uh, that uh, they have uh, put on duty an African, uh, excuse me, an officer uh, who was involved in the fatal shooting of an African-American. That news just coming down. uh, And the officer's body, as you see in the headline, the officer's body camera's not turned on until after the shooting. We'll have more of those details on that tomorrow on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Take care. Holla!